0: Today we're gonna hear from former CEO of Interstates Electric, um, Larry Den Herder. Larry retired in 2016 uh, from his company. Uh, He uh, is currently in Florida, so we're doing this through a Zoom format. Larry uh, befriended me probably 15 years ago and boy, I'm uh, forever grateful for that. He was a real uh, mentor. He invested in me, uh, invested in our company, uh, much like many people invested in him uh, throughout his career. The idea behind this podcast was to create content about uh, people in the industry. We started with Story Retirees. This is our first venture into uh, somebody not from story as part uh, of the podcast program. And I can't think of a more fitting person to lead it off with than Larry DenHerder. All right, well, let's fire this bad boy up. So sure. tell me about uh, where you grew up and, and when was that?
1: I grew up in Sioux Center, Iowa. I am 69 years old, so you can tell that I we'll do I the
0: math st- on that. Born in 51. Yep.
1: And so I grew up in that area, pretty much stayed around that area until I went to college, went to the University of South Dakota.
0: So you were, uh, uh, how many siblings do you have?
1: I have uh, two younger brothers who I taught a lot of lessons in life. I'm sure you did. Until they grew up and said, okay, we got to stop this or somebody's going to get hurt and it's going to be me. Yeah. And uh, one of them's bigger than I am. Uh, Greg lives in Virginia. He worked for uh, a flour milling company. He worked for Conagra and worked for interstates both the boys did Hmm. my brother still does he's our facilities guy in sioux center okay he he's in charge of all the all the buildings and then i have an older sister who lives in minneapolis
0: so you were not the oldest i thought you were the oldest but uh but your sister is older than you
1: right well actually you know if you study birth order uh if there's a a female first and a male second. It's like two oldest. Mm. I, I was really, we had two oldest in our family.
0: Oh, darn. So what, uh, tell me about your folks. What did they do? Yep.
1: We lived a couple miles outside of town on a hard surface road. Uh, my mother was a registered nurse and worked in the Sioux Center Hospital for 45 years, which created some interesting times because we'd walk over there after catechism. And then my uh, dad would pick my sister and I up from the hospital because mom worked three to 11. We also learned how to cook and make sure we did the dishes. Sure. On those nights she was working because we had hell to pay if we didn't. And we lived on a farm and we had, uh, we, Worked the land where we lived. And then my dad uh, crop shared with a brother-in-law on two farms. So, And then my dad had a series of ag-related businesses. For a long time, he had high boy weed sprayers. And he and the neighbor guy were in partnership and they had a deal worked out with, General, or with uh, John Deere and they'd get a test prototype every year, a new model to test out. Mm. So they'd be testing this or that. And they had three or four sprayers at the, at the peak uh, those high boy John Deers. And then he also had a, he had a fertilizer truck that he hauled uh, fertilizer, and then egg lime, that's where he ended up, uh, hauling egg lime into Sioux County from Gilmer City. And so, grew up. Uh, we were very blessed. We weren't wealthy, but we were well taken care of. And uh, being Dutch parents, I we were my parents were very frugal, sure, and careful. I call it.
0: Yeah. So I grew up Catholic, and they called it catechism. Yeah. Uh, did you grow up Dutch Reformed then, and was that it referred to catechism as well?
1: Exactly, and I, I grew up in the Reformed Church of America, which is different than Dutch Reformed. Okay, but it's a it's it's a kind of a it's pretty close. To, it's in the Protestant family. Yep, and uh, didn't have all the old traditional Dutch stuff. My parents did speak uh, Dutch, and I, I learned enough to understand <laughs> what they were saying when they were talking about stuff they didn't want us to understand. But, um, yeah, we had um, Sunday school on Sunday. We went to church, uh, you know, a fairly conservative family on Thursday night during the school year. Then we had a catechism, which was deeper dig into the uh, religious training. So, sure,
0: sure. Uh, All right. So you were, uh, what did you do in high school? Uh, did you play the trombone? Were you in the play? Were you basketball player? What did you do?
1: I sang in the the choir and in the boys' glee club, boys' choir. I played the tuba. I played uh, football. Uh, I tried track for a few years and did the weight stuff, the discus and shot put, mostly discus. Um, What else did I do? Um, that's about it. I wasn't very coordinated, so I gave up on basketball pretty early. And uh, I just had a – I didn't study, though, hard enough. I kind of – it came too easy, so I kind of skated through high school. I really didn't learn how to buckle down until I went to a year of college and said, Whoo, I got to study. I can do this if I just apply myself.
0: So you could you could go anywhere. You, I'm sure you had your choice of colleges you could go to. So right, how sure, did, how whatever. Did, how, how did you end up at Jackrabbit? How did that? Uh... Well,
1: university. I'm. A, I, we went to the University of Vermilion. Actually, we Shari and I both went to the branch campus. They had a branch campus oh. in Springfield. Okay. Mal Churchma was uh, my high school football coach, and he was from Springfield, and they had an engineering. Uh, part uh, some engineering courses there. And I took electrical or uh, electronic engineering. And uh, Shari was an uh, elementary teacher. She got elementary ed. But uh, I played one year of football and figured that as much time as that took and energy, I better be studying and trying to figure out how to pay for college. Got it. Well, I had a couple of part-time jobs at school and, uh, and then worked um, at interstates, uh, in the summers and even on the weekends at
0: times. Got it. So you mentioned, uh, Shari, your wife. So did you, uh, is she from Sioux center as well? And she went there, did you meet her in school?
1: Yeah, we met in college and she was, she's from uh, a little town called Olivet, South Dakota. It's on highway 18, about 90 miles west of Sioux center. And so she was about 35 miles uh, from college, and so we met there, and yeah,
0: All right. there we go. Well, we'll get into that more in a little bit. Uh, so you, uh, you studied electronic engineering. Right. And uh, But you said you worked some at interstates, so when did you, uh, part-time or whatever, so when did you start your uh, career at interstates or at least working at interstates? Right.
1: I started in 1969. I was between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And my dad, uh, the Franken family and our family were, uh, we went to the same church. My dad and Johnny were friends and, uh, dad was having coffee with John one morning at the local coffee shop, Doc's cafe. And, uh, uh, Dad said to John, do you ever hire high school kids? Larry's looking for a job this summer. Oh, no, I never do. They don't work out. <laughs> he, Dad comes home and says, no, that's not going to work. And I'd worked for a contractor, a carpenter, a couple summers. Actually, I started. I did that about two or three summers. A uh, guy that built our house and my uncle's house and a cousin of mine. And then uh, about two weeks after this conversation John called and said, or his admin called and said, why don't you come in for an interview? So I scared the 16 year old kid come walking into this downstairs office. And I, I still remember everybody smoked back in the day and it smelled like Salem cigarettes. Yeah. That menthol smell. You never yep. forget it. And he hired me and I worked six summers before I graduated from college. And you know, summers, weekends. We uh, this was part of part of that tenure during that period was uh, during the IBP expansion strike-breaking days. Okay. So, John had called me one time and said, "How about working Saturday and Sunday in Sioux City at or Dakota City at Iowa Beef?" He said, "I'll triple your pay. I was probably making 80 cents an hour then. Yeah. Give you gas money." And then, uh, but it's a little tricky. So you got to meet at the Y on Friday night, and then we all drive together with the bus in the back gate and sneak in. Okay.
0: Huh.
1: They were remodeling middle meets at that time, and and so as their strikers are out front, we're in the come in the back gate, and and we are helping them reset that whole middle meets. This is kind of before, as they were migrating towards packaged beef and breaking the halves down more so in production beef. But I worked uh, various projects. Uh, and then the year I graduated from college, I worked a year in in a, a feed mill for Allied Feed Mill in Columbus, Nebraska. And I worked with our senior, one of our senior superintendents at that time. And, Basically, I looked at that. I didn't know how to weld. I was not a typical farm kid. Sure. And I just, he'd set up little experiments for me. Okay, fix this, figure this out. And so a lot of times after work, I'd go back to work for an hour or so and, and try and troubleshoot this circuit or that circuit. Why doesn't this starter work? Okay, here's a drawing, wire this up to that drawing. and. It was really good practical application. And uh, after I, uh, uh, Daryl Ramhorst, my uh, mentor, he really started that same way. So, as we started bringing other engineers on board, we felt it was pretty important for those young, inexperienced engineers to go through that kind of training program sure. on, on field or in field, hands on.
0: All right. So you, uh, you started, uh, did you start then as an electrician did you, uh, after you graduated, or were you an engineer? What, what did that look like?
1: I, I worked as an uh, electrician in the field for about 10 months. I worked all the way through one project, and then in 75, we moved back from Columbus, Nebraska to Sioux Center, and then I worked as a, a project engineer doing project design. We did a lot of um, design build work at that time, a lot of feed and grain stuff. Yep. And we built, uh, we started building control panels uh, then, but mostly we do the design or have a design criteria and we'd have somebody build them. And eventually we got into building our own.
0: So you're back in the early seventies. What, uh, how how many people worked at interstates and where... Where did you do your work?
1: You know, we, um, when I started in 69, we were less than 20 people and um, probably 15 or so. And, uh, you know, we had worked quite a, we were working all over the country, no international stuff at that time yet, but Bud had done a project in Dunkirk, Indiana, and then when I went to into the office in 74 or five, then he, uh, we were doing a lot of allied jobs. Uh, we were working with uh, Todd and Sargent and T.E. Everson out of Minneapolis feeding, feeding grain people. Right. And so we, Memphis, Montgomery, we did a lot of work in the South, Southeast, um, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, we, kind of backed away from commercial work there was no money in it the uh, a lot of times you work for uh, public entities that never paid you on time and hassled and haggled about everything low margin stuff and it wasn't the design was already done so we got more into feeding grain we started doing pet food processing um, food
0: processing that kind of stuff and at that at that time were uh, who owned interstates?
1: Let's see, when I graduated uh from college, John Franken probably owned 65, 70 percent. Daryl, well, there was actually three partners beside John, and one of them ended up going away, but John DeZale and Daryl Ramhorst had stock, and that would be from about 74. Or seventy-two to about seventy-five or six, and then Jim uh, Franken came on board about seventy-five or six, and then a couple years or a year or so later, he bought some stock, and then a year after that, about seventy-seven or seventy-eight, I bought stock. So there was ultimately five of us that uh, that we were. We ran with five shareholders, John having, he still had a majority or he still had the most, but he didn't necessarily have a majority without Jim's vote. Got it. Yeah. And we ran that way for probably 15 years or so. And then we started selling uh, more stock to some of the other long-term employees, maybe three or four of them.
0: So you were designing, you were a project engineer. so just talk, step through your career and some of the big inflection yep. points at interstates.
1: I tried estimating, but I, I just didn't care for it. Uh, I like you good at it. Uh, no, okay. I, I, I don't know. I could, I, I, I could do it, but, uh, I could just sit there and grind on that all day and not so much. Yep. And, uh, there are people that are made for that and are really good at it. Um, I give Ron Vanderplug a lot of credit. If you could work a job after he laid the numbers out, it was going to be right. And you had the money to do the job. Yep. Uh, some, not so much. Uh, me, not so much. I. Uh, as we grew, we decided that we needed to kind of focus on engineering, but we also had to focus on, okay, now we got the job. How are we going to manage it? because it was a little hard to kind of serve both of those entities at once uh, because something always took priority. So I kind of leaned towards project delivery and project management, which meant scheduling, manpower, materials, customers, and that kind of thing, contracts and so forth. And so once the job was, we had an estimating department and a sales, and that's what Jim led and Daryl um, led the engineering side, and I led the project delivery side, and John Zale was our CFO, and John Franken was the president of the company. And he always wanted to keep his pulse on the labor. Right. Again, which he owned until the day he retired, he thought.
0: When did he retire?
1: Uh, he retired in 95. And by that time, we had grown from about a handful of people to about 90, I would say, or so. Yeah. And and I think our revenue was in the middle 20s by that time. Okay. 20, 25 million. And then when he retired, then Jim took over as CEO. And, you know, he carried on a lot of the same attitudes that his dad had, except that um, he was a little more progressive, uh, a little more open to change and had a, he, you know, he, Jim went to uh, Northwestern College and had a psychology background. So he, you know, that, that kind of worked in his favor, trying to figure out what people were thinking and that kind of stuff. Sure. That's some of that whole leadership development. You know, Daryl and I kind of led the technical side of our company, but uh, the leadership development, which was really the other piece that was missing. From you know, we could do technical and code training and all that stuff, but if the guy doesn't really care about his job, um, you still got a you got a bigger problem. So right. put that leadership piece and the technical piece together, then we really started. Getting traction with uh, with our people.
0: And was Jim older than you or younger than you?
1: Uh, Jim was about a year younger than than I am. He, I was in a class ahead of him in high school and and so forth
0: in school. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, man, you're up to ninety people. Uh, so you've quadrupled the size of the company and. Right. 25 years that you've been there
1: yeah and uh and by that time we had we had st- we we got a little frustrated with um the panels we had to buy uh because of cost delivery quality that kind of stuff so we started um tackling the well let's build our own that all sounds pretty easy but you gotta kind of train that whole concept from ground up and This is before computer days. So you didn't have the computer graphics. So you had to figure out how to put this artistic graphical interface on the front of these panels. And we kind of uh, started with that. And then that kind of morphed into PLC uh, programmable logic controllers, uh, the early computerized control. They kind of replaced relays and that was all happening as John was heading towards retirement Mm. and well, he hated that new technology. He just didn't understand it. And um, so then we kind of morphed into higher level um, process control and um, started doing batching and blending and some of that kind of stuff. And actually Daryl and I each wrote, we said, if we're going to lead this, we got to know how to at least talk the language and understand it. So we each took a project that we programmed ourselves, which was not that much fun. Yeah. it'd be like
0: estimating only different.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's one of those things, when you're committed to it, you gotta, you gotta stay committed. Well, when you're managing or managing either people that are leading Projects, or you've got five or six jobs yourself that are going, it's pretty hard to stay focused. So we, we knew, then we started hiring engineers to do that and to do that kind of programming. And we had a handful of engineers around by that time. And then we hired computer programmers, uh, some uh, MIS type or IT type people And they got into some of the more sophisticated languages that we did projects under, but okay. So now we're, now we're starting to grow. Now we're at maybe 150, 200 people. And I, when Jim died in 2001, I think we were between two and 250 people or so, maybe 300. I I don't remember exactly, but we were in the 30 to $34 million by that time. And he, he died in 2001.
0: And that was, he uh, was he sick or was that just unexpected?
1: That was pretty much unexpected. He had had a, uh, uh, after 9-11, we were both scheduled, Jim and I were both scheduled to go to China later on that fall. We were going to a world ethanol conference to see what this market could become and how we could approach more of that business internationally. And, and before we decided to ultimately go we decided that maybe it was best if we both didn't go so i went and he went to mayo that same time and had his annual uh, uh executive physical and so he came back from that with a pretty much clean bill of health he had had some heart arrhythmia when he was a kid and, but had uh the doctors were fully aware of that and said okay your heart is fine someday you'll have to maybe deal with this or that uh, and uh, he was pretty optimistic about it and and i think early november he died hmm. driving to work and had a mess he had a heart heart attack got the car stopped and wow. uh, a passerby found him yeah it was too late
0: well, uh, certainly no uh, nobody plans for that. So how did that, yeah. what, what, did, what did that look like for you personally? And then what did that look like for the company?
1: You know, uh, fortunately, we had done a fair amount of uh, disaster planning, uh, uh key executive uh, situation. You know, I had started thinking about that. And because that was uh, October, November, and Daryl was done... The first of March that next year. And pretty much he was right after Christmas, he was taking the last two meet, two months of his employment off to go to Texas to try that. So he had, that's, so he was ready to bail. Sure. And we had a plan. I was buying his stock back. Um, we had a plan for how we were going to do this and, and, uh Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, Daryl's retiring and Jim dies. And I'm thinking, wow, what did I get myself into now?
0: Yeah,
1: And we had enough uh, key man situation. Financially, we were okay, but not necessarily uh, leadership wise. And uh, and then where's that next generation of shareholders? So we had sold some stock to uh, some of the senior field people, but uh, that was a start. Uh, Randy, Van Vorst, uh, Wayne McDaniel, Ron Vanderplug uh, Brandt had some minor shares and they were starting to develop. But uh, Scott Peterson was around then, Cromrine uh, was there, um, Jack was around, Doug Post was basically taking over for engineering. So those guys had to basically step up a lot further than they were gonna. Sure. And we had to re- reset our whole thinking. And uh, we sat down with the bank and said, here's our plans. And this is how we uh, expect to make it happen. And, and it took probably six months to a year to get that fully executed, get all that churning done. And um, that's in 2000 one is at Jim's death. That's when I became CEO.
0: And prior prior to that, were you still kind of running the operations, or what was yeah. your okay?
1: Yeah, my my role had had been for that last uh, series of years has been um, VP of operations. Basically, uh, the senior project managers reported to me. I ran very few projects at that time. Um, we had to do a fair amount of uh, collaborative selling on projects where the owners wanted to meet the team or the customer wanted to meet the team. So we'd assemble a team and then we'd, you know, make a presentation or whatever. And, and so my job was evolving into more of that, uh, sales executive for operations. Right. And, um, when Jim died, we just had to kind of rethink how we were going to lead the company. So, um, I got more out of that operational side. I was totally out by then. Uh, well, soon to be because it can't go this way. I, I, I can't do all that. So, right. stepped up. We named him as the leader of the construction side. Scott was a CFO and eventually uh, moved uh, beyond that. Uh, Jack led, Jack Wilbur led the uh, automation and control side and uh, Doug Post led the engineering side. Our our different disciplines.
0: So that, that all happened in the early 2000s, and right. all of those guys are either still in place today or retired, right?
1: Yeah, the ones that are retired are that senior bunch of field guys, Randy Van Voorst, yeah. Wayne McDaniel, uh, Ron Vanderplug Brandt retired this year, this past year, those four. Uh, Kenny McQuiston retired before that. He was one of our senior um control engineers. Yeah. Norm's cop or pilot retired before
0: that. So that's pretty stable though. I mean, if you think in this day and age for uh, the better part of 20 years for that team to stay together and keep running in maybe some different capacities. And that, that senior
1: bunch of field guys, they kind of managed that. Brant was in sales. Uh, Randy was, one of our senior project executives, and so was Wayne, and Ron was our senior estimator. They stayed in place and and gave. You know, we knew we had to plan for not only that generation but the next, and that's why we we set up two groups, so to speak. Um, the senior leaders uh, were kind were kind of young, but you know, we always tried to hire people that could take company farther than what we had
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so when i hired dave kremrein as my direct project uh, management or operations manager or vp or whatever it was um i knew that he could take it if if i took that whole group to here he was going to take it way up to here And, and he made me really proud of the systems the the way they trained and the way we expanded, you know, it's just, it's really fun to see young people like that take the reins and run with it. And then there comes a point when, you know, you got to, as he was around for a couple, two, three, four years, you know, you where you say, saying, hmm, if you don't let leaders lead and get out of their way, That what do they do? They get frustrated. Yeah. And, and so I knew that I needed to do something different. And so when, in this whole transition period in 2001 into two, I was really moving away from the the operations side more towards um, more of the senior executive uh, sales marketing and that kind of side. I knew all our customers. I knew how to put jobs together. A lot of times you just had to have the confidence. They had to have a confidence and leadership team that, you know,
0: so I've I've known you uh, uh, probably s- since the early 2000s, uh, but I've only known you in that um, business development capacity, uh, right. not really all your operations background, but that uh, that allowed you to move pretty seamlessly into that and relate to your team and your customers.
1: Right. I knew all these people.
0: Yep. So you uh, I know you're very active were very active at interstates and and uh, that was your primary focus but you're also a Renaissance man that has a lot of other uh, interests in the community and the state uh, nationally and associations w- uh, talk about those
1: you know it uh, some of that stemmed out of investments you know uh, we had made Charlie and I had made uh, stock payments to John for a long time so we figured that we didn't necessarily want all our money in, in that
0: mm-hmm.
1: company. So uh, once we had our stock paid off, we started investing in, in this or that and got involved with some commercial rentals and that kind of thing. And that was, that was kind of a sideline, but through that we met, started meeting a lot of people. And, uh, and even through our, through our business, we met a lot of people and, you know, early days, Uh, John always encouraged us to be um, good stewards of the community, you know, get involved with JC's, get involved. I was uh, on the Susan public library board for a number of years. And uh, I learned a lot. You learn a lot of things and uh, uh, I was involved with the Susan hospital on this hospital board uh, took the, uh, board position and and co-chaired the building committee and ended up raising money and and we built a forty-six million dollar hospital in Sioux Center and ultimately uh, they're expanding it right now. Um, you know we always had the. Uh, Shari and I were always involved with stuff around the community, uh, whether it was church or hospital or, or school or whatever. If you don't you know, if you're blessed, you got to give back. Right. And, uh, we knew it and we knew we were blessed. And, uh, John Franken really showed us how to do that. He, you know, I had the luxury of growing up in two, uh, very different, but interesting families. And John knew that he was very blessed and, um, he gave a lot back to his community. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, we, we, Construction Trade Associations, um, early days, Jim was involved with ABC, um, and we went to a lot of meetings together. He was a Iowa chapter chairman for a number of years, and then I got on the board later, and I kind of went up through the ranks and did the uh, state thing, both from a leadership and a political and all that stuff, and then got involved with ABC National, which was Fun and rewarding and actually i got to make the presentation when dick johnson got uh became um a life member of abc that was a that was a true highlight yeah very cool fun very presenting cool. him to the uh membership um yeah our our part of the, uh we got involved with a lot of industry uh events too, you know, if you don't spend any time where your customers are hanging out, it's that's an easy place to build relationships where your customers are are hanging out, right. getting their continuing education or where that industry is um, growing. And uh, that when they allow you to be a part of that, that's pretty special. And, and I think that just like in a lot of things, uh, people buy what they want to buy from who they want to buy it. So think about the cars you buy. I have a relationship with a handful of car salesmen and I, I call them up and uh, I go to them, you know, and and it's just like, I think in, uh, in, in the, in the services business, like we're in Mike, you know, it just like I do you're as good as your last job, but having a good relationship gives you maybe a card, a leg up. It does. Do you stumble, you get a chance to recoup possibly. Yep.
0: Well, and uh, you also served our state on the economic development authority board as well, right? I did.
1: Yeah, that was, that was kind of fun. I was appointed by uh Governor Branstad at the time when he came into his last eight years and which was going to be eight it ended up only being six but um, that was uh, interesting this Iowa Economic Development Authority headed by uh, Debbie Durham and uh, it uh, you know you do those kind of things for a dual purpose I think part of it is given back but I took a lot of stuff that I learned there and brought it back to our own company. And we got to hang around with some really successful companies, people, uh, organizations around the state. And, um, you know, that was, it was a fair amount of work because uh, we had to prep and, and back in the day we used to get a packet on Thursday or Friday in the overnight mail, and mm-hmm. it would be an inch thick, and you had to study all that stuff. Well, in my second year, we went automated, so you could study all this stuff online, which made it easy, but usually you'd get it on Friday for the next Friday meeting. Well, that meant if you were busy all week, you'd you'd spend all weekend trying to figure out what what's up. Sure. And so then I was on due diligence for a while, which really did a lot of deep dives into projects that were coming before the board. And then I chaired the board for a couple of years too then. So a very interesting, very rewarding. And I think it did a lot of good things for a company
0: too. You mentioned, uh, Sioux center and some of your efforts there. So uh, what was the population of Sioux Center, do you suppose, when you were growing up? And, and what is it today? Or what, I mean, did you see the community completely uh, change over or refresh? Uh, How is it different today?
1: Yeah, it, uh, it really changed. Um, I, it was probably 2,000, 2,500 when I was growing up. And it's probably just a shade under 8,000 today. Hmm. I think the community is very loyal to itself. And one thing I learned from people like Dick Johnson or those kind of people, if you don't, or John Franken, if you don't reinvest in your own community, who's gonna, right. Then the money, if somebody else does and sees the need, then, then where's that money go? It's right. out of
0: town. Right. Right. Well, I know you've been out of interstates for a little bit, but uh, how many people are at interstates now? What's their, uh, yeah, it's,
1: You know, I think that we scaled back a little bit after COVID hit because we had really ramped up. I know that we had probably three to 400 people working in data center work. Yeah. And it's probably back from that. When I retired in 16, we were about nine something, 950 or so. And I think the highest number I heard is about 1,100 people. I, I I'm not exactly sure where all the regional settings there are are located. There's one in northern Minnesota. There's a we've had a regional setting in uh, Blair, Omaha area for a number of years. Fort Collins. Uh, there's there's a regional setting in Texas. So some of that is to just to give people a stable base right. in a local area where you're doing a lot of business.
0: Yep. So far earlier in the, in the podcast, we talked about uh, you and Shari, and um, I'm, I know you yeah. have kids, so uh, tell us about your kids.
1: Uh, actually, Ross and Reed turned, we have twins that are 40 today. Wow. I talked to both of them this morning, and uh, Reed and Rhiannon, his wife Rhiannon, uh, Reed lives in um, Spirit Lake, he's a veterinarian. And he has, uh, his wife works for Walmart. She's a pharmacist and they have, uh, Zoe and two little, uh, girls. They adopted from Haiti a year ago. Hmm. So that's been a really busy family. And these little girls are just cute as a button and they talk really fast and really loud and, and they're, they're just living the dream. Perfect. Have been busy and uh, Ross is, uh, lives in Yankton. Ross is married to Dina, she's an elementary teacher. Ross is an attorney, he's in private practice. He's a Yankton city attorney. <coughs> they have two girls, uh, 13 and 10, uh, Harper and Collins, and they're both very good students and work hard. and And our youngest, Maggie, she's 35 and she's married to Chad Phelps, and he, Chad works for uh, Rockwell Aerospace. He's in our finance group, and Maggie's a pharmacy manager uh, for Hy-Vee, and she, we talked to her last night because her youngest turned five yesterday, and she has Pen, Penny, who is I'm going to have to have some money on my nightstand at the lake because she's going to get arrested. To yeah. <laughs> she's naughty, but she's fun. And Briggs is seven, and he's our only grandcha- grandson. And, uh, yeah, they're, she, she's a, she was the youngest pharmacy manager in the chain at 25 or six.
0: Mm. All right, well, we'll, well, we're going to start to land the plane here. So this is the Pearls of Wisdom segment. This is where, as you look back on your career and your life and uh, really speaking to people in our industry, what, what words of encouragement would you have for young people at interstates, young people at Story, young, young people anywhere uh, about um, lessons they can learn from you?
1: Wow. That's, uh, you know, it seems like I paid a lot of tuition on, uh, on these various lessons. You know, if I look at my partner's, uh, and I think a lot, I learned a lot from John Franken, Jim Franken, Daryl Ramhorst, uh, John DeZale, Bernie Gacki, Bud Vogelzang, those people, they were willing to take young people, a uh, young, naive person like me, and, and uh, took me under their wing and spent the time and really helped me develop my uh, uh, places where I could really make a difference in the company. And... I think that's something we really worked hard at is getting the right people sitting in the right seats on the bus. Um, Probably the other thing that I think is hugely important that uh, our young people have to figure out is, um, you know, when people decide on uh, unless it's strictly a build or a bid job, which we didn't do very much of that stuff. Our work was relationship based, services relationship based, even at the doctor's office. If I don't like my doctor, if I don't have a relationship with him, you know, I'm not going to go to him. Yep. So you got to be able to relate to people. And I'm really concerned about the younger generation who, if they're not looking on their damn cell phone or looking at their computer, they can't hold a conversation. And so, meeting people where they're at, listening, paying attention, um, noting what their interests are, build a relationship uh, with people. Because I would have never got to know you if I hadn't built a relationship or we hadn't built a relationship through Dick. Right. And I think a lot of good things can come out of that because of that. So, Uh, We're never going to be on a total situation where the computers always make the decision because you got to have that common sense. And, and it's not easy. It's not every day is not a sunny day, right? It's pretty
0: discouraged, and um, you know, um, don't be great. I think that wraps it up unless you, uh, do you have a mic drop moment? Do you have anything else to just throw into the pool?
1: Probably a, a last note, and I really learned this from John, you got to surround yourself with good people, no matter whether you're a field superintendent or whatever, you got to have good people and you got to, got to get them pointed in the right direction and let them go and never bet the farm. We never, we tried not to bet the farm. We might've bet the acreage a few times yeah, or maybe an 80, but never all the land and Young people, if they know how to make decisions, if they know what your core values are and what the company stands for, dependability, integrity, trust, quality, and family, if you make your decisions based on that, you'll never go wrong. Yeah. You may screw up from time to time, but then you'll learn something from that and you'll regroup.
0: Yep. Awesome.
1: It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed you guys and your company. You got a really neat company and I enjoyed listening to the podcast in fact I'm trying to figure that out Spotify that that was not in my library this is an incredible project I I think it's great I you know we did this interview and then put it in paper but that's not like talking it's got a this got a way better flavor
0: I think you can just go and like it and it'll show up now Awesome thank you All right hey thanks Larry There you have it. A lot of really good uh, pearls of wisdom in there. I've known Larry primarily as a business developer, but I learned a lot through this as it relates to his operations background and upbringing. Uh, In spite of being quote-unquote careful, uh, i.e. frugal, uh, Larry's very, very generous uh, with his time, very generous with his resources, and uh, as he says in the podcast, gives back a lot. And uh, certainly uh, he's done that uh, for me. He's done that, I know, for his community and his company. And uh, thankfully he shared uh, some of his story uh, with all of us today in a very, very generous way. So uh, grateful to you, Larry, for uh, joining us and uh, getting us started with with a non-story participant in the exit interview.